Welcome to the RUF City Campus Podcast. New York City is home to nearly 1 million undergraduate students, and RUF City Campus exists to reach those students with the gospel and equip them to serve. In order to accomplish this mission, we rely 100% on generous donations from individuals and churches. If you'd like to make a donation, please visit givetoruf.org today. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this podcast. So a number of years ago, the Washington Post decided to do an informal social experiment. And they hired a violinist by the name of Joshua Bell to go to a DC metro station and play some music. Now Joshua Bell is one of the world's greatest living violinists. And so what they did is they they said, Joshua, we want you to go to the DC metro station, we want you to go in street clothes so nobody really recognizes who you are. And we're going to give you this Stradivarius violin to play in the metro station. Now, if you don't know anything about violins, this particular Stradivarius violin is worth about three and a half million dollars. So the scene here is this one of the world's greatest living musicians playing on one of the world's most beautifully exquisite instruments, playing some of the world's most beautiful music. And over the course of about an hour, about a thousand people walked right by. A very tiny number of people stopped to listen occasionally. An even smaller number of people stopped to drop money in the case that was sitting there on the ground in front of him. And so here you have all of this beauty right in front of these people, and most people just walked right by. Dismissed it, ignored it, completely missed the beauty right in front of their faces. Now why do I tell you that story? I tell you that story because tonight we are talking about sex, and in particular we're talking about what the Bible has to say about sex. And what the Bible has to say about sex is actually quite beautiful, but most of us tend to walk right on by. Tend to dismiss it, ignore it, uh, pretend like it's unimportant. And what I am attempting to do tonight is a tall order. What I am attempting to do is to open our eyes to some of the beauty of what the Bible has to say about sex. Now, uh, that is probably going to be a bit awkward at times, so if you need to giggle, that's fine. Um, You can let out a little giggle, it'll help cut the tension, that will be okay. I also have to make a disclaimer, as I'm looking around the room and talking, I'm always trying to make eye contact. When I say something about sex, when I say something about, my my eye contact is not uh, personal, I'm not saying like, Brian, you need to hear this particular comment that I'm making right now. So there's there's nothing intentional about my eye contact, it's just generic communication theory. I'm making eye, to- eye contact with the people in the room um, as, we, as we talk about sex tonight. Last thing, please do send in your questions to the number on your handout. We're doing Q&R again next week, and we won't be able to get to all the questions, but uh, that's why we're doing the extra Q&R night in a couple of weeks. So, uh, yes, now we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about sex. We're going to start at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then we're going to skip ahead to Genesis chapter 2, which is sort of a zooming in on what happens in Genesis chapter 1. And we're getting a, a closer look at what happens when God creates man and woman here in Genesis chapter 2. 
right after Eve is created, then the man, Adam, said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now skipping ahead to the New Testament, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. All things are lawful for, for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. And lastly, from Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Since this is God's word and not my own, let's pray and ask for his help as we turn our attention to it tonight. Father, we do need your help. This is a complicated subject and a bunch of complicated texts from the Bible. And not only is it complicated, it is uh, full of controversy and confusion. And so we need you to cut through the clarity. We need you to help us see the beauty of the way that you've created sex and the way you're inviting us to live in light of that design. Holy Spirit, would you come and help us um, to see what it is you would have us to see, to see the truth about ourselves, to see the truth about you, to see the truth about sex from these words tonight. It's in Jesus we pray these things. Amen. Why? Why, why should we consider what the Bible has to say about sex? Why should we even bother with what the Bible has to say about sex. One reason, I think, is because we have so little clarity in our current cultural moment about sex. Because on the one hand, we have the, the Andy Warhol school of thought. Andy Warhol, the great uh, artist, famously said, sex is the biggest nothing of our time. It doesn't really mean anything. It's nothing, it's meaningless, it's pointless. It's just like hunger and thirst, it's just a biological appetite. When you have sex with someone, it's just like eating a good meal. It just, it doesn't, it's of no consequence. But on the other hand, you have the Woody Allen school of thought. Woody once famously said, I don't know what the question is, but I know that sex is the answer. In other words, sex is everything. It's not nothing. It's everything. A life without sex is really not a life worth living. Lauren Winner, who's a professor at Duke, she puts it this way. 
She says, society tells us simultaneously that sex is no big deal and that it's the most important thing in the universe. Sex is so banal and meaningless that we can have random casual sex with our next door neighbor, yet sex is so hugely significant that we can't possibly live without it. In other words, we have these two contradictory messages in our culture about sex that on the one hand, it's, it's completely meaningless, it means nothing, and on the other hand, it's everything. And your life is empty until you have it. And the obvious problem here is that these two messages are, are contradictory, and so we need clarity. And you may think the Bible is an odd place to look for that clarity. And I think what you'll find as we look at these texts tonight, that in some ways the Bible is going to say exactly what you expect it to say. and In other ways, the Bible is going to surprise you and say some things that you might not expect. We're going to look at three things tonight about sex. We're going to look at the goodness of sex, the goal of sex, and the glory of sex. The goodness of it, the goal of it, and the glory of it. So first, the goodness of sex. You might not uh, immediately think of the Bible as a document that talks about sex being good. You might put Bible and sex in the same sentence, and you might want to finish that word with a different sentence. Not good, but restrictive or oppressive, particularly to women, or regressive and puritanical and irrelevant. But the Bible is actually very sex-positive. The Bible is actually very positive on sex. In, in the ancient world, there was this idea floating around Corinth that sex was bad, that sex was nasty and dirty. And so this text that we just read um, from 1 Corinthians, Paul is actually quoting a letter that the, the, the Christians in Corinth have written to Paul. There's a number of issues going on in that church, in that community, and they wrote Paul a letter and said, can you please help us sort through some of these issues? And one of the issues, one of the ideas that was floating around is what you see there in chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning about the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So this idea was floating around that sex was nasty and bad and dirty, and you should avoid it. It was good not to have sex. But Paul speaks directly into that. And it's basically saying sex is not dirty and bad. He says, listen, not so much. In the next few verses, he says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, you guys should get married, and then once you get married, you should have sex. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. You may not realize this. The very first command given to human beings in the Bible is to have sex. The very first command to, given to human beings in the Bible is to have sex. We just read it from Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. He just created man and woman, and he says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. What is he saying there? Make babies. Well, you and I, all, we all know how to make babies, right? You've got to have sex to make babies. The first command in the Bible is to have sex. There's a book right in the middle of the Bible called Song of Psalms, or Song of Songs, sometimes called Song of Solomon. And in that book, there's a dialogue between husband and wife, between two lovers. And in that book, they are delighting in one another's bodies. I'm going to read to you uh, some verses from Song of Solomon. This is from chapter 4. This is a, a husband speaking to his wife. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. In other words, you've got all your teeth. That's pretty sexy. Um, your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. 
Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of incense. What's he doing there? By the way, this is from the Bible. He's delighting in her body. He is taking joy in his wife. Later on, the very next chapter, she does the same thing. This is what the wife says to the husband. She says, my beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lemadon, choice as the cedars. Do you hear what she's doing? She's making her way down his body as she does this inventory of the way that she delights in his body. Sex is good. It's a good thing. It's made to be enjoyed. Now, you may be thinking, okay, this is sort of, why is he telling us this? This is a weird place to start because we all know this. Our problem is not that we don't want to have sex and we need to be convinced to have sex. Our problem is that we want to have sex and we think maybe the Bible is prohibiting us from that. Why are we starting here? The reason we're starting here is because there is a way to talk about sex that makes it sound like it's dirty and bad. Especially in the church. Especially if you grew up in the church, mostly what you heard about sex was a list of do nots. A list of warnings. Do not have sex. Do not look at pornography. Do not masturbate. Do not do these things because you'll get an STD or you'll get pregnant or you'll ruin your future marriage. And listen, there is a place for those warnings. But if we act as though that, that is all that needs to be said about sex, if we act as though that is all the Bible has to say about sex, then we are flat out wrong. Because the Bible says that sex is good. That's the reality. And the reason that it's good is not some dirty little secret. The reason that it's good is because God made it that way. He made your body and my body to enjoy sex. Sex is good. But that's not the only question that we have to answer. We also have to ask another question. Not just is sex good, but also what is sex good for? What is sex good for? What is the goal of it? What is the purpose of it? Because in order to rightly enjoy any good thing, you have to use it according to its purpose, according to its goal. Pizza is a good thing. I love pizza. And pizza is really good for eating, but not so good for Frisbee. If you go back there, and some of those pizzas haven't been eaten yet, if you go back to the side of the room over here and you grab one of those pies out of the box and you try to eat it, it will be good. It's good food. But if you try to throw it across the room like a Frisbee, you'll end up with a mess on your hands. Why? Because that's not the purpose. That's not the goal of pizza. The goal of pizza is not to play Frisbee with it. The goal of pizza is to eat it. It's good for food. It's bad for Frisbee. And the same is true of sex or any other good thing. In order to use this good thing to be enjoyed, you have to use it according to its goal, according to its purpose. So what is that? What is the goal? What is the purpose of sex? Well, one of the purposes of sex is recreation. The mutual enjoyment of husband and wife. We've sort of covered that one already a little bit. But that tends to be where we stop the conversation in our culture. We tend to stop with, well, sex is good, so go for it. But there's more to be said here. Because another goal of sex, another purpose of sex is procreation, is the creation of new life. The command to have sex that we just read from the very beginning of the Bible 
isn't just a Bible for Adam and Eve to enjoy one another. It was, it was a command to create new life, to fill the earth, to multiply, to fill the earth with people who bear God's image, more human beings who bear God's image, to rule with creativity and kindness and goodness, to care for the earth that God has created. That's one of the goals of sex. Another goal of sex is not just recreation and procreation, but also unification. This is the one we're going to zoom in on here for a few minutes. It's unification. It's to deepen the unity between husband and wife. To deepen the bonds of marriage. Paul, uh, in 1 Corinthians, encounters the, the Andy Warhol narrative of sex. That it's meaningless. That it's nothing. And so he quotes, again, he, he, in multiple times throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, he quotes common phrases or things that come up in this letter that the church at Corinth has written to him. And one of the things he quotes is there in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And that was a metaphorical way of saying in the ancient world that sex is meant for the body, and the body is meant for sex. In other words, that sex is just biology. It's just biology. It's like hunger and thirst. You can do whatever you want. It doesn't really matter. It's ultimately meaningless and nothing. But Paul doesn't let that slide. How does he respond? Look at verse 15 and 16. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Now what is Paul talking about here? He, he's, he's saying that if you are a Christian, part of what it means to be a Christian is to be united to Jesus that you belong to him and he belongs to you, that your joy becomes his joy, that your sorrow becomes his sorrow, your suffering becomes his suffering, and vice versa. And so part of being a Christian is be, being united to Jesus in such a way that your life becomes intertwined with his. You become intertwined with Jesus. And in fact, Paul says, he pushes this analogy further, and he says, you are united to Jesus so closely that when you take your body and unite it to the body of another person in sexual activity you're actually uniting Jesus to that person as well. That that is how closely you are united to Jesus if you are a Christian. And then he takes it one step further in verse 16. He picks up this language of one body, of one flesh that we saw from the beginning of the Bible, from Genesis chapter 1. And what he's talking about there, when he's talking about one body and one flesh, it is, he's not speaking in technical terms about the way that physical bodies fit together when they have sex with one another. He's speaking in spiritual and relational terms. He picks this idea up later on in verse 17. He says, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So he's speaking in spiritual, relational language. And what he's saying is that sex is not merely the intertwining of bodies. It is also the intertwining of lives. It is a unifying act. It binds your life to the life of another person. Now, listen, this is not merely a Christian idea. This idea is not unique to Christianity. I heard an interview uh, a number of months ago <clears throat> on the NPR show On Being. It's hosted by a woman named Krista Tippett. And in this particular interview, in this particular episode, she was interviewing a woman named Helen Fisher, who is an atheist anthrop anthropologist who her focus, her expertise is love and sex and attachment. And this is what um, this is what Miss Tippett said to sort of start this segment of the interview. She's speaking to her audience, and she says, "When we fall in love, it turns out it's dopamine 
that makes us feel obsessed with the object of our desire, while chemicals released during sex activate a profound sense of bonding. And then she turns and she starts to address Dr. Fisher, and she says this, Another thing from your science that I was applying to that is that you talked about how casual sex doesn't really remain casual. And Dr. Fisher says, that's right, it's not casual. And Miss Tippett says, and why? Why? I mean, how can you explain that? And Dr. Fisher says, it's because of what is set off in your brain. Your body conspires to make you start feeling attached to this person or in love or both. And when you have an orgasm... Bet you didn't think you were going to hear the word orgasm in RUF tonight. And when you have an orgasm, you get a real flood of oxytocin and vasopressin. And these are the basic bodily and brain systems for attachment. And then the interviewer, Miss Tippett, says again, right. It's like what mothers get when they love their babies. And Dr. Fisher says, yes. Don't have sex with somebody you don't want to feel something for. You hear what she's saying? She's saying that... The same hormones that are in, like the same chemicals that are released into the brain of a mother when she nurses her newborn baby, the chemicals that, uh, that form attachment and bonds of love between mother and baby are the same chemicals that are released in your brain when you have sex with another person. She's saying sex is fundamentally a unifying act. It is meant to deepen attachment and love and connection. Whether we intend to or not, that is what it does. And this is why the Bible insists on marriage as the context for sex. Because what marriage is, we mentioned this last week, we'll talk about it again next week in more depth, but what marriage is is a, is a public permanent promise that all of me belongs to all of you for all of time. That what you're doing when you marry another person is you're standing up and publicly declaring that I belong completely and permanently and exclusively to you and you are becoming one. That's where this what this language is getting at, you're becoming one legally and economically and socially so that when you marry another person, you now move through life, not as two individuals, but as one unit. You make decisions together. You think about life as one unit. That's what it means to become one. And what sex is meant to do, what it was designed to do, is to deepen that oneness and that unity. It's designed to deepen that. And within that promise, within the covenant of marriage, sex is about service of one another. It's about cultivating safety and intimacy and vulnerability and honesty and love and connection, all the things that are necessary for doing life together day after day after day over the course of decades. What sex is meant to do is to cultivate those realities within the context of a lifelong commitment. But without that promise, without that covenant, it actually can't be about service. Because what you are saying with your body is all of me belongs to all of you for all of time. But with your life, you're actually still holding back. You're saying, not really. You're saying with your body, I belong to you. But with your life, you're saying, no, not yet. And what you're doing is you don't actually belong to one another. You have made no promise of permanence. It is, in, in some ways, an embodied lie. What you're doing is you're, you're writing a check with your body that your life can't cash. I know nobody writes checks anymore. We all do Venmo, so we're going to go with that image instead. If you decide that you want to buy one of those sweet new RUF sweatshirts in the back of the room and you need to send me $20 via Venmo, what you do when you send me $20 is you are making a promise. You are saying, I'm good for that $20. You can count on my bank account to have $20 in it when Venmo contacts my bank and is like, all right, it's time to bring your $20 and put it in his bank account. You're, you're making a promise. You're saying, I'm good for that $20. You can count on it. And what happens is, 
If, <clears throat> if you send me that Venmo $20 and then your bank account reads zero, what you're actually doing is you're lying to me when you say I'm good for that $20 because you're not actually good for it because there's no money in the bank. And when you engage in sexual activity with someone outside the context of marriage, what you're saying is with your body, you're saying, I'm good for life. You can count on me to love you until the day that I die or you die. But what you're saying with your, the rest of your life is nah. You're saying with your body, you can count on me for life, but with the rest of your life, you're, you haven't said any of that. You've not legally, formally bound yourself to that person. See, inside the context of marriage, sex is a true gift. Because what it helps you do is cultivate the kind of safety and vulnerability and love that are necessary for life over the course of decades together. But outside of that context, it's not a life-giving reality. It's not a gift. It's actually a danger. <clears throat> when we, before we moved to the city, we lived in Alabama, and we had this great backyard. In Alabama, we had this big deck, and on our deck, we had a fire pit. And that fire pit was fantastic. Because what you could do is you could, you know, on a, on a beautiful fall evening, um, you could sit out there, and you could build a fire, and you could roast marshmallows and make s'mores, and sit out and drink a glass of wine and look at the stars and have conversation with friends and read a book. And it was, it was this light, great life-giving reality that would bring warmth and life into our lives. And so the fire inside the context of the fire pit was life-giving. It was a force for good. But if I ever accidentally knocked over that fire pit and the fire escaped out of the fire pit and then caught the deck on fire and then caught the house on fire, you see that that force for good now becomes a force for destruction. That in the right context, that fire is a force for life. And outside of that context, it is destructive. And sex works the same way. That inside the safety and the permanence of marriage, it is a life-giving force. But outside of that safety, outside of that permanence, it's dangerous. And I know, listen, I know that it promises life. I know that it says this will be good and this will be life-giving and this will be fun and this will make you feel free and more like yourself than you've ever felt before, but it can't actually deliver on that promise. It just can't. Send me questions. We can talk about that at Q&R, but it can't. And the reason that it can't is because the goal of sex is not mere enjoyment, but it's also the creation of new life and the deepening of the lifelong covenant of marriage. That's the goal of sex. So lastly, what's the glory of sex? Look again at uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife, speaking about Adam and Eve here, were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's just pause for a second and imagine that world. A world in which you could be completely naked and not ashamed by what you see in the mirror. And not just physically naked, but also like emotionally naked, totally vulnerable with another person and have no fear of shame. Imagine what it would be like to live and never have the fear of feeling, what if someone sees me like this? What if someone sees me wearing this? What if someone sees me looking like this? What if someone sees how actually insecure and bitter and angry I am? What if someone finally notices how I'm actually not that funny, not that pretty, not that smart? Not that skinny, not that well accomplished. What if someone sees me as I really am? And this is the world of Genesis 2 where, where you actually don't have to live with that fear. Before sin and shame have entered into the world, a world in which you can be fully naked, fully vulnerable, fully known, with no fear of rejection 
or shame, but actually fully loved and embraced. And the glory of sex is that it tells us that a world like that is actually possible again. The glory of sex is that it tells us that a world like that where you can be fully known and fully loved is actually possible. This is why, by the way, you all want to have sex. The main reason you want to have sex is not because it feels good, good, though it does feel good. The main reason you want to have sex has far less to do with your hormones and far more to do with your heart. That you, you want to have sex because you imagine that for that moment, for those moments, it will allow you to feel fully known and fully loved, totally vulnerable and not rejected but embraced. It, it will let you let down your guard in a way that feels impossible in all of your other relationships in every other area of life. And that is what draws you in to sexual activity. It's far less about your hormones and far more about your heart. G.K. Chesterton, a, a British theologian, put it this way. He said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Now, what in the world does Chesterton mean by that? Look again at Ephesians chapter 5. Paul picks up this idea that we've seen through in all of these passages from the, the very beginning of the Bible. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But then he says, this is, mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, what Paul is saying is this thing called marriage, which includes sex, which includes this unifying act of, of becoming one flesh, isn't merely about husbands and wives. It's also about Jesus and the church. It isn't merely about spouses being fully loved and fully known by one another. It's actually about you and me being fully known and fully loved by God himself. See, the glory of sex is that it points beyond itself to something more glorious, to something better than sex. It points to a world in which the God of the entire universe, who knows you better than he knows yourself, sees you to your core and all of your mess and does not run and hide, but actually moves towards you in love. Megan and I, if you don't know us, we have three small children, and mercifully, only one of those children is left in diapers. Um, but there was a time where we had two children in diapers at once. And um, hopefully we're like 12 to 18 months away from being out of the diaper phase of parenting altogether. But even though we will be happy when that is over, uh, there's actually something very tender about the diaper phase of parenting. Because in that phase, it actually allows you to embody the love that you have for your child in a unique way. Because there is a, there is a biological instinct that kicks in when you smell a kid with a stinky diaper. And that biological instinct is to run away, right? Like, this is nasty. You go figure that out. I'm going to go over here while you figure that out. Um, but when it's your kid, something overrides that biological instinct. Your love for that child overrides that biological instinct so that what actually happens is you recognize, okay, they have made a mess that they cannot clean up for themselves. And if I don't clean it up, no one else is going to clean it up. I'm the only one who can take care of this mess. And so because you love them, because you smell their stank, what you do is you move toward, you don't run away, you actually move towards them because they stink and because you love them. And you scoop them up and you lay them on the changing table 
And you actually get your hands dirty in the mess that they have made. And you sing songs to them to comfort them while they're in the most vulnerable position imaginable, pants off and legs in the air while you clean them up. Like, and that's what you do. And you do that not in spite of the fact that they have made a mess of themselves, but because they have made a mess of themselves. Because you love them. Your love for them compels you to help them in a way that they cannot help themselves. And the same is true of the way that God has loved us. That we have made an absolute mess of ourselves. But God has not run away or rejected us in our time of need. He's actually moved towards us in love to clean up what we could not clean up for ourselves. To clean up what we would actually be helpless to alone. He sees us in our most vulnerable places and does not shame us, but actually meets us there with tenderness. That is what God does. He knows the depths of your sexual sin and brokenness far more than you do. And he has not rejected you. He knows when you have misused sex. He knows when you are stuck in patterns of sexual sin. He knows when you are obeying on the outside, but inside you're pissed. Because you know, there are things that I want to do that I don't think you're letting me do, and I don't, that's stupid. Why won't you let me do that, God? He knows all of that. And he has taken all of that sinful mess upon himself on the cross, and in, in its place, he's given you his pristine righteousness instead. So that you are no longer dirty, but clean. You are no longer cursed, but blessed. You are no longer a stranger or an orphan, but a beloved child. You are no longer dead, but alive. You are not defined by your sins and your failures, but instead by his unceasing love for you. And the glory of sex is that it, it points beyond itself to that reality. That God knows you to your core and does not reject you, but he actually moves towards you in love. See, sex is not bad or dirty. It's good. Sex is also not meaningless and empty. It's full of meaning and full of power, but sex is not ultimate. It points beyond itself to something greater, something far better, as weird as it sounds. Sex is about Jesus and the way that he loves you. Would you pray with me? Thank you.